So today I wanted to continue our exploration of the Buddha's teachings framed around the Four Noble Truths using this lens of fear and fearlessness by going deeper today into the Second Noble Truth. Anybody remember? You're the expert, John. Yes, the cause. There's a cause of suffering, and that cause is someone else. Craving. Craving, yeah. Craving, clinging, resistance. So with the first noble truth that there is dukkha, just because we have a human body, there will be times in our lives when we're subject to stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha is the Pali word. A lot of that dukkha we don't have any control over. For example, we can't stop ourselves from aging and dying. We can try to take care of ourselves, of course, but we can't always prevent injuries or illness. And no matter how hard we try, we can't always get what we want. Partly because everyone else is trying to get what they want. (laughs) So... There are all these challenges and a certain amount of dukkha is inevitable, a certain amount is beyond our control. But what we do have control over is how we relate to life's challenges. And this is where fearlessness comes in. Because although it might sound counterintuitive, to the extent that we're able to open to and accept that there is dukkha, there are challenges, there'll be a part of life, to the extent that we can accept that, the less we suffer. The opposite is also true. The more we cling or resist, the more that clinging and resisting enhances, deepens, prolongs and intensifies the dukkha. So I know I've shared with some of you in retreats this uh, formula from the uh, U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young, who's also a mathematician. He has this very simple formula, S equals P times R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. So the P for pain here refers to any kind of unpleasant experience, not just physical pain, mental pain too. So some amount of pain, of unpleasant experience is inevitable, but the more we resist, the more we suffer. S equals P times R. It's not S equals P plus R. There's a multiplier effect there. The more we resist or fight what's going on, the more intensely we suffer. And resisting is an aspect of craving. And in the second noble truth, the Buddha identified three specific forms of craving. So here's the new pop quiz. How many of you know the three forms of craving identified in the second noble truth? Going into another level here. Nope. Yep. So the first one is craving for sense pleasures and then craving for becoming craving for non-becoming. So the first one, clinging to sense pleasures, is pretty obvious. We'll come back to that in a minute. The other two, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, are about our basic desire for existence, or at times actually for annihilation, depending on circumstances. So as many of you shared in the fear lists a few weeks ago, 
a lot of our fears are social, socially conditioned. So stemming out of our primal desire for biological survival, we add the need for social survival because we're tribal beings. We can't live alone. The Buddha knew the truth of our interconnectedness. And there's this often pervasive fear of being rejected, ostracized, cast out from the group not belonging. So we have this craving to belong, to become, to be seen, to be acknowledged, to be recognized, to be praised, to be part of the in-group. All of those are aspects of this craving for becoming. At other times, that goes awry. When things aren't going well socially, we can fall into the opposite, the craving for non-existence. You know, in English, we talk about wishing that the earth would open up and swallow us up or... We feel shame, we want to become invisible, we don't want to be seen, we're terrified of being recognized or afraid of responsibility, afraid of taking on a role and so on. And then in its most extreme form, it can become the wish, uh, suicidal ideation. So these two are kind of opposite poles of clinging for becoming, clinging for non-becoming. And I'll be going more into those two next week. For today, I wanted to focus mostly on the craving for sense pleasures, partly because in response to fear, especially anxiety, we often have an unconscious reaching for something out there to make us feel better, some kind of substance, some kind of experience, some kind of pleasure. So... On a societal level, alcohol is the big one. Take the edge off the anxiety, especially in social settings. We have a drink to make ourselves more like the life of the party. Or food, so-called comfort eating, the tub of ice cream at the end of a rough day. Sex, shopping, getting lost in busyness and overwork, we could even say, are ways of avoiding dealing with unpleasant feelings. So I thought it would be interesting just to hear from some of you what you may have noticed that you tend to use as a default antidote to the discomfort of anxiety. And you can call this in for a friend. You don't have to say it's your own thing. It could be something you've observed in friends or family. But what kind of strategies do are commonly used to take the edge off anxiety? Anybody? Yeah. Netflix. Netflix. Yes. Net- <laughs> Netflix. That's, that's, Netflix that's, and chill. That's yeah. My, yeah. That's, yeah. That's my drug. Yeah. Netflix and Foxtel. That's, that's your drug. Great. Thank you. Beautiful. Others. Actually, for me, it's often exercise. Exercise. Uh-huh. And just forgetting, forgetting what's happening in your head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. And just to name with any of these, that, that can be also skillful means. Mm. You know, if it's mm. done with awareness, mm. if we're looping on the outside rim of proliferation in that model I offered last week, then actually using exercise to come back to the body can be helpful if it's done with awareness, but if it's just like, oh, I hate this, let me go and pound it out, and it's done more with violence or aversion, then it's perhaps... So, you know, these are the nuances that we want to 
to tease apart. Yeah. So in that case, I would say that's actually a skillful response rather than an addictive response. But, you know, again, just notice what's the attitude that you're doing it with. And at times it might be more compulsive, but at other times it might be grounded in wisdom. Yeah. Sherry. I think another one in that same category that could be skillful means, but when I use it, it's really <laughs> <laughs> is um, just speaking about my stress. Ah. And downloading it, but it's more a reflex. It's more habitual. Yes. Get it out of me. Right. Yeah. Spit it out into the world, which can be extremely unskillful because then the other person catches it. Yes. <laughs> and we're both swimming in stress. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just reflexively verbalizing it without aware of the context. Yeah, thank you. For me, it's um, uh, doing something which is creative. Mm -hmm. I get lost in my creativity. Mm -hmm. I forget what ah. So doing something creative and you can get lost in it mm -hmm. and it takes you out of the distress. So again, there could be some skill in that. In all of these things, it's how how we're doing it, how much awareness there is. Yeah, thank you. Soraya. Um, as a psychotherapist, there's a band of women that I meet regularly who are in their 30s, um, work really hard, drink. Um, but they also do a couple of other very interesting things. They may have evolved from an eating disorder into an exercise obsession. Ah. Um, another very popular one is the downloading, and downloading can be verbal, but can also be barrage of um, texts oh. to people. So oh. it's like just spitting everything out. Oh, <coughs> right. Um, and, uh, and uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so over-exercising, which yes. is still rooted in control. Yes. Yeah. And... I was thinking then of social media, like that's like Sherry was saying, that's a very easy way of just yeah. <laughs> discharging it all out into the universe and it seems like it's not going anywhere, but mm -hmm. you know, people are reading that. Still toxic to some degree. Mm -hmm. Dania. I was gonna say mine's not skillful and that's just sugar. Sugar? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Coffee. Which is actually really interesting in terms of anxiety. I was yeah, talking to I was talking to a psychiatrist recently in, he, in the U.S. and he said caffeine is the very worst thing you can do for anxiety and if there was the one drug he would cut out for people with anxiety, it would be that one. And yet I have a lot of friends who do 10, 12 cups a day and then they're like, yeah, yeah, it's, they drink it like water. Anyway, sir. I was just going to comment that Yes. Yeah. 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 So part of this exploration is what strategies do we use in in which situations to try and take the edge off the anxiety, and are they actually skillful or not? Or, you know, in some cases they just have us ignore and deny it. In other cases, like with caffeine, they might make it worse so 
this is just the invitation to look and see how am I relating to it and is what I'm doing useful or not. So I just want to... Sorry, one more. Yeah, I think the pro- proliferation that you talked about last week is one as well. Yes. That I'm becoming more aware of as a way of escaping my body. Or yes, yeah. That, that proliferation, worry... Rumination, and it's, it's, it's a chemical thing. Yes. It does do something. Yeah. Like, it's not as enjoyable as Netflix, but it'll <laughs> take me to Netflix eventually. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gets too much, and then that'll be the next thing. Yes. But that's kind of, that's there too. Yes. The proliferation is a misplaced strategy to distance ourselves from the discomfort of the physical sensations. But I think it's also true that it often contains the illusion that I can think my way out of the problem. So if I just think about it enough, at some point it's going to go away. But I think for most of us it doesn't. It just keeps looping. So yeah, proliferation itself can have an addictive quality to it. Thank you. So I wanted to name some of these with the big caveat or proviso that not to have any sense of shame around them as much as we can because... As you heard, all of us have a kind of a go-to set of strategies that we use to try and navigate this discomfort. And bringing in self-judgment or shame is only going to exacerbate it. So I thought of a quote from the children's book, The Little Prince, the French book. And there's a character in there who's called the tippler. And the child, the little prince, asks him, well, why do you drink? And he, he says something like, because I'm ashamed of my drinking. And I felt that just so captures that loop, you know, why do I do X, Y, or Z? Because I'm ashamed and that keeps the whole cycle perpetuating. And because these negative energies and um, of anxiety can be so intense, I really want to keep emphasizing the Buddha's two-pronged approach to all of this, the wisdom and the compassion. We generally need both of them together particularly when we're working with very strongly conditioned responses like anxiety and fear. So the wisdom wing invites us to look at the processes that are creating the experience instead of getting lost in the content. So when we're proliferating, we're usually just rehashing the story and playing out ideas about the future or regret about the past. We're really locked in the content and we're not able to step out and see this process of looping. So last week I invited us to just stay present with the physical sensations of the anxiety as a way of beginning to not go into the story about it. So this cultivating of what we sometimes call bare awareness is really a key skill. <coughs> it's really a key skill of mindfulness. So we can think of it as developing meta-awareness, M-E-T-A, one T, sort of cognitive higher awareness where we're not lost in the process. There's some capacity that keeps us outside of it, observing it. And then we have the meta-awareness with two Ts where we're meeting our experience with kindness. And this is the compassion wing of the teaching. So as I was offering in the guided meditation before, just trying to open to our experience with kind curiosity. 
So I wanted today to go a little bit further into compassion itself. I think as most of you know, it's one of the four, what are often referred to as Brahma-Vihara qualities, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And sometimes people say, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion, karuna? So I think of metta as a kind of a basic feeling of goodwill or orientation of goodwill. It's warmth, kindness, sort of non-specific, just a generalized attitude of openness, of goodwill. And when that basic foundation of metta turns towards suffering, turns towards dukkha, stress, distress, pain, it flowers as compassion. So compassion is a more specialized aspect of metta that is particularly about meeting pain, stress, distress. And one of the benefits of it is that compassion softens our resistance to suffering. So it can be a very powerful alternate strategy for meeting anxiety rather than grabbing after sense pleasure if we can orient to compassion, to self-compassion, we have a more skillful way of navigating the anxiety. So if we've got rattled by some kind of life situation and we're feeling anxious, insecure, shaky, the instinct might be to grab a glass of wine or put on Netflix or whatever, grab another packet of biscuits, But if we can have the presence of mind to just take a moment to recognize the pain, the distress very directly, and relate to it with compassion, it might help us unhook from the knee-jerk, grasping after sense pleasures. So this invitation to self-compassion doesn't have to be big production. We don't have to stop everything and sit in a lotus position and start going through the phrases. Perhaps you're in a work meeting and something, anxiety is being triggered. You might just very gently, just for a second, put a hand on your heart just to have an embodied way of reminding yourself of that as a possibility. You might flash on some phrases. So the phrases I use, um, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release and may I know peace. So that's just one set of phrases I use. I'll give you the reference in the resource sheet. But you can shorten it to aware, care, release, peace. Or maybe just peace. So whatever you can do in the moment to just flash on that energy of softening and turning towards the pain rather than resisting it, trying to escape it, going into sense pleasure. That's the idea. Perhaps you have an iconic image of someone who represents compassion to you a relative a living being perhaps an iconic person like the Dalai Lama perhaps the archetypal image of Kuan Yin so again the invitation is to start to develop your own sort of compassion resources approaches strategies whatever again being creative whatever helps to soften resistance to pain is is useful And in my own experience and also working with a lot of students, compassion is often the missing piece. 
And I think generally meta is usually given a lot more airtime. We hear a lot about meta and not so much about the other three. But the downside of that is it can give the wrong impression that meta is supposed to be the default response to everything. And sometimes it's not the most appropriate response. So I often use the example of students saying something like, you know, I've been trying to do meta for my ex-partner and I've been in a custody battle with him for five years, but it's just not working. And so usually I'll say something like, well, have you thought of doing compassion for yourself? And usually there's this kind of stunned look and sometimes outright horror just at the idea of meeting one's own frustration, pain, resentment, anger, etc., with anything like kindness. So there can be this avoiding. Metta can be used in a way to avoid. You know, we have this tendency, I think, to out there. So if I'll do, I'll do my metta out there for everyone, but bringing it back in here is often the missing piece. There's also a tendency, and again, I've seen this in my own practice, to try and use the phrases to disconnect us from unpleasant emotions. So, for example, I'm feeling unhappy or lonely or whatever. I've been on retreat and I'd be like, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace. And when I got wise to this, I realized what I was actually saying was, I hate this, get it away from me, when's it going to be over, I've done enough metta now, come on, go away. You know, it's actually using the metta practice to distance oneself from what's actually going on. So it starts to become more like spiritual bypassing, which is John Wellwood's term for misusing these practices to avoid uncomfortable emotions or not deal with developmental tasks in life. So compassion alone is challenging enough. Self-compassion is even more difficult for a lot of people. I think society-wide, and again, especially for men, there's this idea that self-compassion is weak, it's self-indulgent, Perhaps we don't deserve it and so on. So if you remember back to the fear lists in the first week, a lot of the fears were around feeling not good enough, unworthy, inadequate, deficient and so on. And the practice of self-compassion very directly challenges some of that deep conditioning. So in the beginning, for many people, it's often met with surprisingly strong resistance. That was definitely true for me. It's true for many of the students I've worked with. So again, sounding like a broken record here, gradual, really gradually training in turning towards self-compassion. Little homeopathic drops here and there until eventually it does become metabolized and it can become more of a natural response to our own pain. And then from there, our compassion for others is coming from a more genuine place also. So this capacity to develop compassion really relies on knowing what's even happening in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. As many of you have pointed to, there are different ways that we try and convince ourselves that of what's happening, distinct from what's actually being experienced. 
So again, we need to come back to the wisdom wing of the practice to learn to know more and more clearly what is happening physically, emotionally, mentally. And again, that's what the wheel model is all about, is trying to get more clear around that. So I tend to, I'd like to, this afternoon, move more into looking at the mind specifically. So last week we were looking at the body. Today I want to move into perhaps an even more challenging practice and begin to look at our mental activity with the same (coughs) approach of bare awareness. So looking at our thoughts, our emotions, our moods, our mind states. And I'll say more about the definition of those, I think, after the break. I think we've had a lot of information already. So how about we take 10 minutes at this point just to refresh the body? And then when we come back, I'll give you the definitions of mind, different mind states, and then we'll do some actual practice. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.